It's Thursday, March 16th, 2023, from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors took a step towards the recommendations of a council it commissioned to look into reparations for the city's African American residents or descendants thereof. The top line recommendation is $5 million for each black San Franciscan. Here is Ben Shapiro somewhat derisively describing more of the proposal. San Francisco's Reparations Committee has now proposed a $5 million payment to each black longtime resident, as well as total debt forgiveness of like all debt based on what? I'm unaware that that anybody who's alive today was a slave in the United States. If so, then we should probably find out about that. I'm unaware that the members of the San Francisco taxpaying community were slaveholders at any point in their lives or in the lives of their parents or in the lives of their grandparents. I could have played many other conservative commentators talking about the proposal. I cannot play tape of many left-leaning popular podcast hosts or cable TV hosts with similarly large platforms as Shapiro because the discussion has broken down along these lines. San Francisco makes the proposal. The right derides it. Papers like the San Francisco Chronicle covers the discussion in a column by Justin Phillips, San Francisco's Bold, misunderstood reparations proposal hasn't had its first hearing. Of course, conservatives pounced. Well, now they have had their first hearing. It was approved. It's moving on. And conservative pounced even more. Is the reason that conservative commentators don't understand what's being proposed? Is it that they don't appreciate how bold it is? Is it that they're misleading their audience, falsely describing the proposal? Maybe they're just unkind, cruel, or racist. Well, they may be all that, but that's not why a proposal for a city which has 40,000 black residents due to be paid $5 million each is causing howls of outrage. I think it might be more due to the fact that The bill for that would be $200 billion. It's 14 times the city's annual budget. The Hoover Institute at Stanford, which is a conservative-leaning organization, calculated, the math seems right, that the proposal would cost every San Francisco household $600,000. Now, the per capita income in San Francisco, which is the highest in the country, is still just $160,000. It sounds decent, or maybe it sounds more like the full wages of every San Francisco for 31 years to pay for this proposal. And keep in mind that the majority of San Franciscans are people of color. The city's 15% Latino and 37% Asian. There are more Asian Americans in San Francisco than white Americans. We're going to ask the great-great-grandchildren of these Chinese Exclusion Act victims to compensate the great-great-great-grandchildren of slavery. And also keep in mind that Mayor London Breed, herself African-American, so therefore in line to get $5 million, I suppose, hasn't endorsed or even, I don't think, commented on the dollar figure. She openly talks about her worries that her city has a $728 million budget deficit over the next two years. She did recently reject claims by Asian Americans that the city contribute reparations for past policies. See the Asian Exclusion Act. Considering the price tag for that request was only $100 million or one four thousandth the cost of the current proposal, it's unlikely Breed is inclined to think that $5 million reparations per African American is a good idea. By the way, it's not just the $5 million. The plan also provides for the erasure of all debt, all student debt, all credit card debt, 
and $97,000 in salary for 250 years and homes in San Francisco for a dollar per black family. Obviously, this isn't a serious ask, or is it? And by saying such, would a San Francisco politician risk doom? The members of the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco seem to take it seriously. They voted unanimously to keep the proposal going. I read about some of the meeting and read the quotes emanating from the meeting. No one did anything but talk about how the legacy of slavery is horrible and how this commission did good work. The only people I've seen criticizing it are Republicans. NBC in a headline says a controversial draft reparations proposal that includes a $5 million lump sum payment for each eligible black person could make San Francisco the first major U.S. city to fund reparations, though the plan faces strong criticism from conservatives. That is accurate. I haven't seen any non-conservatives oppose it. Some talk, some non-conservatives do mention that the dollar figures are probably hard to achieve. And some don't mention that at all. I do wonder why the ask is so big. I think it's to make a point, but maybe it's that psychological ploy of anchoring future negotiations. So if you ask for $5 million, maybe you'd get $50,000. And wouldn't most black residents of San Francisco take $50,000? Wouldn't they like that? I don't know, actually. How will people respond? Will it be, whew, 50,000 I didn't have before? Or will it be, that is only 1% of the original ask. Will it be seen as a victory? Will it be seen as enough to redress past wrongs? And if not, what will be the point of reparations? Will they really repair? If you treat $5 million per black resident as less than legitimate, don't you open yourself up to charges of being patronizing? Uh, aren't you being patronizing? Forget the charges. You're not taking into account the severity of historical black wrongs as defined by this applauded and unanimously passed document. It'll be fascinating to see how this plays out, to see if the grand dollar figures will be treated as grand gestures or if the rejection of those figures will be treated as grand insults. Will it move the Overton window, as they say, as they so, so often say? Or will it move all but the most diehard voters away from the Democratic column if Democrats are seen to be associated with this proposal? And if it does that, what will it take to repair that particular rupture? On the show today, you dare answer the question that I, a congressman, asked? Well, I'm reclaiming my time. But first, Ethan Cohen is a former diplomat who had a front row seat to the chaos that unfolded in 2012 in Benghazi, Libya, when two U.S. facilities were attacked by members of the Islamic group Ansar al-Sharia, with others in tow, possibly naturally inflamed by an offensive film, possibly just roused and tools of terrorists. Chorin now writes about it all in a new book, Benghazi, A New History of the Fiasco That Pushed America and Its World to the Brink. We discuss what got us to that moment and what the U.S. has or hasn't learned from that day. Ethan Chorin, up next. On the night of September 11th through the morning of September 12th, 2011, in Benghazi, Libya, four Americans were killed in what was described first 
as a spontaneous uprising and was later found to be anything but. The details, not just of this attack, but really the centuries leading up to it, are included in the book Benghazi, A New History of the Fiasco That Pushed America and Its World to the Brink. Ethan Chorin is the author of that book. He's a former uh, U.S. diplomat who was stationed in Libya from 2004 to 2006, was actually in Libya the day of the attacks, though thankfully, though not at the consulate or CIA headquarters. Ethan, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. It was mostly coincidence that you were there in country that day, right? Uh, yes, I didn't. I didn't plan to be in the middle of a melee. Not an ac- <laughs> not an accusation, but my point is, for people who haven't read the book, it wasn't as if you said there's something brewing. We've got to get there to render aid or something like that. You were there on a different project when the uprising occurred. Well, there were connections uh, in the sense that. Uh, uh, the security situation was rapidly declining. Uh, I had spent uh, the better part of the previous year and a half at that point trying to bring uh, medical infrastructure to to Benghazi. Uh, I'd been in cl- with a part with a business partner or a NGO partner, and um, uh, I had been in c- communication with with Ambassador Stevens generally about what we were doing. I had known him for several years. Um, and I think this is actually a key point. The both uh, Chris and Ambassador Stevens and and I felt very uh, strongly that it, there needed to be more attention paid to to Benghazi. Essentially, after the after the revolution and the American intervention, everything all of the focus moved to the capital of Tripoli, and Benghazi was sort of left in this kind of uh, limbo, um, and things yeah. were getting worse and worse. And I think both of us felt in different ways and using different means that we wanted to try to get as much uh, attention back to Benghazi in Washington as possible. Um, so we were sort of at the same place with this, with same similar misgivings. Uh, and I had a premonition that something horrible was going to happen. I didn't want to go uh, at that point uh, because of that, but I felt um, that again, there was a countervailing uh, urgency to try to get this rather visible project going. And and Stevenson invited me to uh, to the mission for for dinner that night, um, and I told him I I wasn't comfortable with that because of uh, security concerns. I, I figured he had much more protection than than we did, but um, obviously uh, he didn't have enough. Does that, and I know you hold Ambassador Stevens in high regard and you had a warm relationship and you also point out that his uh, memory has been tarnished uh, unfairly after in some of the uh, post hoc analysis, but him just inviting you there and you expressing security concerns, is that an indication of the mindset that ultimately proved fatal? You know, I wrestled with that question, uh, and I, I, I don't because essentially he, sh- he should have known better at that at that point. Um, on the other hand, I think um, I don't know. He was in a, he was in a very difficult position all, all, all across the board, and clearly he was he was very distracted at that point. He'd already realized that he was in the city and things were getting um, worse. Um, in the sense, early that morning there was a surveillance event uh, that freaked everybody at the at the mission out, um, and 
I don't know. I mean, one could look at any one of these incidents and try to read more more into it than is actually there. And I think that's part of what people have done. And on a more macro level, I think one of the problems was that Stevens had a, a sort of, he was relied upon as the sort of the, the expert on, on Libya within the State Department and for other agencies to, some, to, to a large degree, and was caught between an administration, the Obama administration, that did not want to get too deeply involved, and a State Department that actually, you know, uh, d did to some degree, uh, and did have some post-intervention plans for how to, how to put Libya somewhat back, to, back together. Um, and he found that, uh, you know, he was an instrument in getting uh, Secretary Clinton to yes on the intervention, and she was, a, she was clearly a, a, an, in, an instrument of getting Obama to yes, all on the sort of pendulum there. And he felt, I think, responsible partly for that outcome, and I think I think he felt a great deal of personal uh, responsibility that again he he had played a role in getting the U.S. to an intervention in, ben in Benghazi that ultimately led to Kadhaf, uh, Colonel Gaddafi's uh, toppling, uh, and now things were going haywire. So as your book paints the picture, here is how it works roughly, and it works in a lot of different swirling ways. But it works that. Gaddafi was an enemy of the United States, and therefore, at one point, his enemies were our allies, or at least we made common cause with them. Then, when that switched and the United States tried to draw Gaddafi into the fold, and I want to talk about that, the situation with the enemies also switched. And these people who were part of what the State Department decrees terrorist groups, who though we were once allied with, or at least finding common cause with, were now the enemy. We're now given up, for instance, sold out, and Gaddafi tortured some of them. It leads to, I don't know if there are any- we tortured some of them. Yes, we did. Extraordinary rendition, and some of these people wound up in Guantanamo. But uh, to, you know, unwind it in even further, and I don't necessarily want to go back to uh, Italian occupation, though that's relevant. That's not just a relic of these bad feelings. Was it the case that America and American foreign policy was making bad choices, or was it more the case that we had a series of impossible choices thrust upon us? Um, well, probably both <laughs> um, in sequence, uh, but uh, I think the major problem is, is more, more likely to be that we really had no continuity of uh, eyes on what was going on in Libya. Gaddafi, uh, you know, obviously in the 80s, everybody remembers him as the increasing bad guy. He got into various uh, spats uh, publicly with uh, President Reagan, um, and he was directly linked to atrocities, the most uh, visible of which was Lockerbie 103 over which exploded over Scotland. But but again, I think that the United States made the biggest problem with Libya was that during after sanctions, which followed more severely the Lockerbie bombing, Libya was behind a, a, a wall, which I think the United States was perfectly, and many other countries were perfectly happy to have him there because he was just, as long as he was sort of shackled in a way, we, he wasn't presenting a threat. Uh, and so we really didn't understand what was going on. I mean, they re we didn't really understand how the regime worked. We didn't really even know who the major figures were. And so the, the, the rapprochement comes after 9-11, and Libya becomes somewhat was was thought of as marginal to the Middle East politics and suddenly became for the Bush administration a, uh, a potential uh, redemptive play. Um, so, and then of course the, the Arab Spring came along and upended this whole relationship and suddenly you've got people going all, you know, we don't know who's who, 
Uh, we've intervened, and now there's chaos, and we think we we're supporting these moderate uh, people, who many of whom have been trained in the United States and are, are, seem to be progressive, and many of them were. At some point, we decided to move from being a kind of a more passive element post-intervention to actually arming the, uh, the opposition, and we outsourced that, those processes to other states that then switched the weapons to some of these more radical groups. That's sort of, it's more complicated than this, but that's the, that, that's the essence of it. And this is the, this is the sort of, and, and there's still this question of, did those arms wind up in the hands of the people that ultimately attacked the, the mission? You know, whether directly or indirectly, yes. Does the recognition of this complexity, does just trying to acknowledge that the United superpowers have hubris, how much does it argue for not total isolationism, but pulling back and a lot more isolationism than we've endorsed over the last 50 years? Well, if you look at what's going on in the Middle East now, you know, many people are making this argument that, okay, peace is breaking out in the region. Uh, the Saudis are now, you know, talking to the Iranians via the Chinese. Um, but the, the, the ultimate result is that uh, we've essentially lost our, 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 our eyes on the ground um, and our, our weight. That th these things are happening in part because these, uh, many of the countries in the region are, are, do not see the United States as a reliable uh, ally. So they're hedging their bets. Right, right. So, so this is a picture. We've, we poisoned the brand, or the brand of Benghazi has been poisoned, and by extension, the brand of sensible intervention or taking ownership of uh, foreign situations, complicated foreign situations. We, we um, veer wildly between reckless intervention and total pullback. We don't have continuity within our state departments or the other apparatus of official power. And this is what we get. What we get is an incoherent strategy where the only lesson seems to be short-term political gain. That about say it? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I believe Benghazi was a major incident within modern political American political history. I mean, there's no, there's no, there should be no doubt about this. Um, and people, I think the general talking to people and doing these interviews for the book, it seems like most Americans, if they think about it, they have certain ideas of what happened there, but they basically say, okay, you know, four people killed, were killed ultimately. That's not a, they, when you compare it to not the original 9-11, you know, where 3,000 plus people were killed, it's not a major incident. But this is completely taken out of, out of context. I mean, Benghazi was a major factor in the polarization of, uh, of the political apparatus. It was, a, it was almost like a, an eruption of a process that was building over, over years. Um, and the results are, uh, you know, I think uh, the election of Donald Trump was one, one result. I mean, I interviewed many, uh, I, think, I don't think people quite realize the degree to which Benghazi actually did play a factor in the, in the 2016 election. But it's like we've, it's, it's, it's just, you talk about Benghazi and people immediately tune out. Right. I do. It is hard because when you look back, when policymakers or even people trying to uh, convince the public look back, if it's a binary choice and we chose wrong, there's a lesson to be learned and a lesson to communicate, right? So Rwanda, we didn't intervene. That's the lesson. We have to intervene to stop the next genocide, right? And maybe Rwanda is a bigger lesson than uh, Yugoslavia and Bosnia, but there we did intervene and it was a success. We don't talk about it that much, but it probably saved tens, if not hundreds 
of thousands of lives. The complexity with Benghazi is the complexity. What is the lesson? We should have done X instead of Y? I don't know. It's what you're saying is we should just pay more attention to it and recognize the complexity and, you know, fund it with with staffers and experts. But that's not as satisfying as here's we shouldn't have appeased Hitler. Therefore, we'll stand up firm against the next guy. Yes. Uh, but I think that there, there, there is, I mean, look, uh, Secretary of Defense Gates uh, put it in, in all of the, uh, the, the debates about whether to intervene or not, put it uh, very clearly that the United States simply doesn't have the capacity to, to, to effect a, a, uh, an, a, a robust intervention in Libya because we were overstretched with wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we've never done these things particularly well. It doesn't mean that they can't be done done well, but um, I, you know I also argue that the that the that the hesitancy, the the defensiveness about I mean you know the Obama administration did not want to be involved in uh, you know they wanted to be as far away from from these Middle East problems as possible for obvious reasons. Um, right. And uh, I mean I think this is partly where where things got uh, where they got themselves in trouble because they, they were so worried that uh, something that a 3 a.m. phone call would come before the election that they were very def- sort of reacting defensively. And that, I think, opened the door for Republican attacks, which would probably not have been as severe had there been some uh, sort of owning up to what actually had happened uh, in, you know, during, during the attack and where it came from. Yeah. I do. I do want to compare Obama and Trump or ask you to do so. Obama at least had good intentions. He had the doctrine of I don't want to get involved in dumb wars, but he seemed to want the best for the citizens of the world or would at least articulate that. Trump was totally indifferent. You know, he had he would just proudly express an amorality and he was very transactional. So it would seem that if you're a humanitarian, you'd prefer the Obama approach. But did it actually translate into anything positive for the average Libyan? during the Obama administration versus during the Trump administration? Look, I had I had quite a bit of admiration for Obama. I worked briefly for for his uh, for his campaign as an you know, advisor on Libya, um, and um, but I, I felt like his foreign policy in the Middle East was a disaster. Uh, you know uh, that uh, and Trump, ironically, um, you know because of because he didn't care because. He was up. The, the algorithm was completely different. Actually, shook up some things in the region, which we don't know what's going to happen ultimately. But you know, the 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 um, you know, my feeling about the Abraham Accords, for example, is that they were a response that other other entities saw the Amer- Americans bulldozing their way th- into something horrific and used that as an opportunity to to essentially. Um, change change the the, the paradigm uh, to some degree. Again, we don't know where this is ultimately going to go. But I, as soon as Trump came in, I, I, I thought I had this, this this feeling like, okay, he's not going to do half measures. He's going to you know <laughs> he's going to be a bull in a china shop, and maybe that approach uh, might might actually lead to something positive. Um, but that's where I think the the long term decision you know capacity the the having the institutions in place with experts who can 
you know, uh, give good advice and have that be transparent in some way so that there's some accountability. Um, you know, this question of oversight committees also, I mean, there's an argument for oversight committees being a useful uh, tool of uh, opposition holding the, you know, their, their political adversaries to account, but the process itself is, par is partisan. There's no, there's no transparency and it's not, and they're not, whether it's on the left or the right, it's, although, you know, it's to say that, the, you know, the, the left at least has tried a little more, uh, I think, but... Um, but in general, who will oversee the oversight committee? Is exactly. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you, need, you need some, again, this comes back to the whole thing about institution, you know, uh, uh, policymaking institutions. Like, you know, Obama concentrated a lot of power in the National Security uh, Council, which was not its original intention, right? The National yes. NSC is supposed to be a coordinating policy to make uh, communication between the agencies more effective, but it became more of a defensive tool against external attacks. So you have this increasing distance between Obama and the, the, the professional bureaucracies. Yeah. I was thinking, though, when you were talking about how Trump ushered in maybe some chances for success or just allowed them to happen, um, the word that kept coming to my mind was clarity. At least under Trump, there was some version of clarity which didn't exist under Obama or Carter. And maybe there's an analogy to the rule of Gaddafi himself. I mean, at least when he was the dictator and when there wasn't an uprising, there was continuity, there was clarity, there was oppression, but there wasn't all this chaos in the air. And maybe when you're talking about, I wouldn't recommend this for Canada or Norway, but maybe when you're talking about a country like Libya, clarity and order is needs to be much more highly prized than the possibility of, you know, or the upside of something that we might think of as liberation. Well, I, I think that's underestimating the Libyans a bit. I mean, they certainly bear a lot of, uh, uh, you know, their own share of responsibility for what happened after. Uh, but if you look at the number of external parties that are in the mix in Libya, trying to shape the place in their own in their own interests, starting, you know, originally and, and the nature of the intervention, they didn't have a, ch you know, uh, you know, they basically they, they didn't have a chance. I mean, there were th there were three uh, elections in which, you know, ostensibly m moderates won the elections and they were were, they were basically over, overturned by elements that were much better organized and much better funded uh, and uh, implicitly with the support of the United States. You know, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, all of these things are, were preventable. And there were many ex experts explaining how this could have been done better. And if you look back, there's a pattern. It's not like, okay, this didn't work, so we're going to tell you how it should have worked. You know, there's a pattern here, and, and we need to fix that. Ethan Churin is a former U.S. diplomat, political analyst, author, environmental entrepreneur. From 2004 to 2006, he was a diplomat posted to Libya. His new book is Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.
And now the spiel. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell testified before the Senate Banking Committee today, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, was there to give him the what for. At issue, in other words, what for? The Fed's decision to raise interest rates, which will cause unemployment or should cause unemployment if they quote unquote work. The senator and the Fed chair had this exchange. Chair Powell, if you hit your projections, do you know how many people who are currently working going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't, uh, I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not... But it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs, people who are working right now making their mortgages. So, Chair Powell, if you could speak directly to the 2 million hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? How would you explain your view that they need to lose their jobs? I would explain to people more broadly that that inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly. All of them, not just two million of them, but all of them are suffering under high inflation and we are taking the, the only measures we have to bring inflation down. And Putting two million people out of work is just part of the cost, and they just have to bear it. Well, they, will will working people be better off if if we just walk away from our jobs and and inflation remains well, five six percent? Let me ask you. Now I gotta say, by congressional testimony standards, that was actually pretty good. Sure, it was sharp and testy, but Powell was at least given a chance to respond. This is not how congressional hearings often go. I will say this is not even how they mostly go these days if they are the kind of hearings that get any attention. I watch a lot of congressional hearings, and you're welcome. The increasingly common quality in these question and answer sessions is the quality of the questioner not wanting an answer. In fact, being hostile to the very idea of an answer. Here is California Democrat Katie Porter grilling a guns right advocate from the Heritage Foundation. So you knew that the bill would allow any gun owner to maintain possession of any semi-automatic assault weapon that was lawfully possessed before the bill became law. No, uh, so that is the case under that bill. The problem is any time that time. is transferred to anybody Reclaiming else, my time. that Madam now Chair, becomes an issue. Would you please instruct the witness that the time belongs to me? If you don't want to hear an answer to my question, <laughs> I, I'm not sure Jim, what's being Jim. asked. The gentlelady has reclaimed her time. It did not improve from there. Earlier today, you testified that you hoped that this was the last time you testified before Congress. For the sake of our nation and the integrity of this Congress, I, said I Congress, do too. After a mass shooting, trying to figure out how to solve a problem that we are all heavily invested in solving. Ms. Swear, that is I have not point of order. Point of question. order. How dare you? Reclaiming my time. How dare you misstate the law? How dare you ask questions that you do not even want an answer to? Sometimes the witnesses know not to argue back and just let the member have their moment of rhetorical glory. Here was Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, questioning Texas State Representative Senfronia Thompson. Mace favors voter ID. Thompson opposes those laws. Do y'all, do y'all need IDs to buy alcohol when you're purchasing at the store? Yes, if you, uh, to be sure that you are capable of doing that. Right. Do you need an ID in Texas to buy cigarettes? You can't buy them unless you're tw- at least 21. 
But do you have to show an ID to buy cigarettes? You do have to show an ID. Um, do you need an ID when you're getting a job and trying to get on payroll in Texas? Yes. Do you need an ID to uh, go to the pharmacy and get a prescription in Texas? It depends on this prescription. But do you need an ID for some prescriptions yes, in Texas? Do. Yes. Um, do you need an ID to uh, get Social Security services in Texas? You do. Do you need an ID? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, All of those commercial interactions that aren't part of the Constitution need an ID. But of course, Thompson couldn't say that. She couldn't veer outside the yes or no format. Sometimes the congressman or the senator will allow an answer, but then ignore the answer for the answer that he or she wanted. Here, Utah Senator Mike Lee questioned Secretary of the Interior Deb Helland, providing his own answers on top of her answers. Does the president want to continue the oil and gas leasing moratorium? Senator, um, there is not a moratorium. Okay. So th there is not one, so you're saying he, he does not want to continue uh, one. And perhaps we could end with this rather long and not particularly fruitful exchange from last week where Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry uses all the tools of interruption, disagreement, and time reclamation in grilling a professor named Desmond Drummond about the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. What national emergency was occurring during the Biden administration that required us to do that? If I recall, there was a war in Ukraine. And that's a national emergency for the United States of America. Did it, did it imperil the United States of America's ability to drill its own oil, produce its own fossil fuels, refine them, and get them to market? The president made a judgment. Did it make, did, that just answer that question. The did war in Ukraine was driving up costs for oil to the extent to which it would mandate or even lead him to make the decision to make the release was it an emergency it was, was a was global it? it was a global energy crisis this is well established are we no it's not sir here? you can't say it was well established when it's not well there was established. you also say record costs in, sir, in reclaiming energy, my time globally what established facts prices, do you have globally? you say that wind and solar are by far the most cost-effective sources of energy on the planet and you say it's an established fact what are those established facts and who established them? I invite you to read the footnote um, and source for that claim well, just, just in my tell testimony. Me. This is your testimony. You just tell me and tell us what the established facts are. Renewables, particularly wind and solar, are the most cost-efficient and cost-effective means of producing energy Says on this Says planet. who? Says who? Says physics. No, no, no. Says Who's the first? Cite the study, sir. These clips, they find their way online and they're labeled things like Congressman Owns Witness or Jim Jordan Grills Whoever or Watch Katie Porter Smackdown. I mean, that's the online version, the Smackdown phrasing. When she goes on MSNBC, they just applaud her and play her tough questions and don't even bother to play the witness's answer. I've seen that on Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, literally giving her the last word because Actually seeing what the exchange was or what the witnesses giving testimony were testifying to, that's not the point. The point is entirely gladiatorial. And a certain kind of member of Congress knows that they're good at it 
and knows that they can release tapes into sympathetic media ecosystems and that there is literally no downside for them. And there is, on the upside, some reputational burnishing and fundraising possibilities. And you know me. I love spirited, lively, informative back and forths. I live for a good give and take. But what they're giving me here, I can't take it. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is VP of Philanthropic Endeavors for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. Did you fly commercial or fly a private jet on the way to D.C.? A chartered plane. Do you have to show an ID when you fly in a private charter jet? Yes. I wouldn't know. I've never, I've never flown on one. 